Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. This morning, we have Steve Dubb as our guest. Uh, good morning, Steve. Good morning. Okay. Uh, Steve is the Senior Editor of Economic Justice at NPQ. What is this economic justice? What do you do? Yeah, sure. So, Nonprofit Quarterly, we're a publication. We publish both articles as well as do uh, webinars and um, audio clips and video clips and so forth. We were formed in the 1990s, and our mission is to build a, a, a space for a democratic and sometimes disruptive civil sector. And, and we have this notion of, of civil society. It's where uh, meaning is made you know, between uh, the state and the family, and, and cooperatives are part of that. Uh, unions are part of that, churches are part of that, all those different types of associational life. Uh, and we organize ourselves into four uh, main justice areas, racial justice, economic justice, health justice, and climate justice. And I'm the senior editor on the economic justice desk, and uh, we organize conversations, publish articles, write articles ourselves, and basically, hopefully, facilitate conversations regarding how to build a more just uh, world economically, obviously, in intersection with other factors like race and gender and uh, health and climate. So those are the type of things we publish, and I do that with my uh, fellow editor, uh, Rithika Murthy. So I'm going to get those four. It was racial justice, economic justice, I missed the third one, and the fourth one was climate justice. Health justice. Health justice. Okay. Racial justice, economic justice, health justice and climate justice also at some level it seems like when you're working there's a thread between all of them absolutely um and you mainly talk about economics and by far economics is definitely one of those threads economics is part of the i would say the main reason for racial injustice that racial injustice creates health injustice and climate injustice so economics, and that's what you write about. So you can talk about all of these things when you talk about economics. Yeah, I mean, our work intentionally overlaps. And we do view our work very much to, to use the phrase of uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and so forth of the United States without talking about structural racism, for example. Um, and, you know, uh, what we're going to be talking about today uh, the, the, on, the, on black food sovereignty, you know, it obviously cuts across all four of those areas. So black food sovereignty, uh, that's what we're talking about today. And what is, what is black food sovereignty? Yeah, I think the, the idea is uh, for uh, black Americans to control their own food system. And that means you know, producing healthy food. It means employing people. It means um, and employ, you know, both, you know, both farmers, but also folks who are involved with uh, distribution and sale 
of uh, food because you know right now you know the the um, uh, the way the food system has been developed in the United States, uh, Black Americans have been stripped of land and access to healthy food. So there's what the webinar that we're we're doing and the articles that we published on Black food sovereignty were about. We're about community-based efforts in different communities uh, to advance uh, Black community control of the food system. So when you say own our own food systems, this sovereignty, that seems to be huge to me. It's like um, I, I think of, you know, these different grocery stores and Wegmans and Giants and Safeway, uh, this whole system that goes into that. And when you say we own our own, I, that just seems to be too large to do. So how could we own our own food system? Um, well, I mean, there's different levels of intervention. You know, there are uh, food cooperatives that can actually be, you know, substantial, um, you know, and, and compete, if you will, with those Wegmans. That's at the retail end. Are, you know, piece, there are um, folks in between who are, who are organizing, like, farmers markets and food hubs that help black farmers get their food sold at scale and with a profit rate that allows them to uh, produce uh, successfully. So, but, Steve, you know, you, you operate where you are. You're not going to change everything at once, but there, I think you can have that vision of a different type of economy and, and work towards it in your own community. Okay. So from the farmer to the table is where we could get our own sovereignty, working with black farmers, creating a food hub, doing some form of distribution. And this webinar, you're going to be talking about this and what different people are doing in this space. That's right. Uh, so when is the webinar? It's on Wednesday the 25th, um, uh, so six days from now, and it's from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. So six days from now, Wednesday, January the 25th, you were having a black food sovereignty, and then there's different people, I think five people are going to be on telling their stories of how they're doing this, owning their own process, food processes. Um yeah, yeah. From two to three thirty. Uh, now, how can somebody sign up, though? How how, do, how can somebody go to sign up to this? You just go down to nonprofitquarterly.org. It's a public website. You go down to the bottom of the screen on the right hand side. There's a, a place to click through. It says upcoming webinars, and there's one on Black food sovereignty. And you register, and then you get a, a Zoom link for the webinar. So go to nonprofitquarterly.org. And when you go to that webpage, you can go to the bottom of it and click on where it says Nonprofit Quarterly. And there's a picture down there of the folks that are going to be on this webinar. And you can yeah, sign I'll, up. I'll and, say who they are, maybe. Yeah, would that be helpful? Yeah, I'll go to that. But it's it's no okay. charge for this webinar, right? There's no charge. And so it's free to get information about how you can start a process in your community your institution, your organization, whatever that might be, uh, your community to begin to have control over the food that you eat. It, that's exciting to me. Seems to be tough. So who, who are the people that's going to be on the uh, webinar? Yeah, sure. So there's uh, Leanne Morissette. She's with the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. So that's a national group. Um, and then um, Pastor Keith Davis, he um, is uh, leads a uh, urban agriculture effort called Camden Dream Center. They actually have 
hydroponic uh, growing, um, and they've actually to actually a food producer and and linking with the um, education system. So they're training people in Camden uh, in careers um, in the food system. We have uh, Julian uh, Miller. He's the executive director of the Ruben V. Anderson um, Center for Justice at Tougaloo uh, College in Mississippi. That's a historically black college, and they're working with uh, worker-owned farms across uh, the state of Mississippi. We have Demetrius Hunter. He's operating something called the Black Farmers Hub in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And, um, you know, he comes from a family of farmers, and hopefully we can talk about that. But um, there's been, a you know, the, the history of land theft and, and how they're recovering land. And uh, Brielle Wright is uh, part of Black Farmers uh, Market, which is also in the Raleigh-Durham area, and is providing a venue for, you know, about 1,500 people to purchase products, food, food produce from Black farmers in the Piedmont, I think it's called, region of, of North Carolina. So these stories sound very exciting. When I started off, I'm going, how do you, how do you get control over your food? supply your food systems and so coming to this webinar they can listen to five different people talk about how they have created systems where they can own or control the food from the farmer black farmer to the table that sounds that's right that sounds extremely exciting and that's wednesday january 25th from 2 to three thirty eastern time 2 to three thirty. and you can go to nonprofitquarterly.org and sign up and there's no charge for it so to get information about how you can control your own food how did you get involved in this work uh steve yeah so um uh you know i um worked in cooperatives and community development for for most of my adult life i suppose i I started out in a housing co-op in college i was in a worker collective in graduate school which was a bookstore collective for about seven years. And then I worked for a while as executive director of NASCO, North American Students of Cooperation, which is a association of university-based and community cooperatives. And then I worked as democracy collaborative for 12 years. So those were some of the, and you know, helped develop projects, including the Evergreen Cooperatives and which is a network of worker cooperatives linked to the supply chain of hospitals and universities um, in Cleveland, Ohio. And actually, one of those co-ops was a greenhouse co-op. So, you know, uh, I'm not an ag expert. I'm not a food expert. But, you know, what I'm doing now at Nonprofit Quarterly, in a way, is convening the people that I used to work with in, in different fields um, and, and sort of writing about and telling stories about the type of work that I used to do firsthand. So now, I, now I'm more in that convening space as opposed to the actual direct action space, although I, I maintain fingers in projects in uh, Boston area, and I also work on a, I'm also on a board uh, that's developing co-ops in Detroit, Michigan, called the Center for Community-Based Enterprises. Oh, so you're on that board. Okay. So we have had Malik on this show who's helped to create a food co-op, and they have a urban garden in a park. Yeah. So it's seven acres, G-Town Farms, and, and Malik was on one of our webinars on the same topic about a year ago. So, yeah. Um, and they're starting up a whole uh, people's food co-op market as well in on the north end of uh, Detroit. 
Okay, so we're going to take a break. Uh, we're taking our first break. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for being on. Steve from Nonprofit Quarterly. And when we come back, I want to get more into these stories of, of these five people. But even before that, let's talk about the history of black farms. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting conversation. So let's come back and talk about the history of black farmers in America. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. News Talk 1450 WOLAM, where information is power. Information is power. That's why WOL is a great partner. That we're giving information, and right now is about black food sovereignty. That if you listen to these community stories of these five folks that's going to be on this webinar in six days, Wednesday, January the 25th from 2 to 3.30, you can, you can find out how you can have control over your food, probably at better quality foods and a lower price if you can get food directly from the farmers. And you want to make sure that the farmers can make a good living or they won't farm. And we want to talk about why a lot of blacks stop farming. So we're going to talk about the history a little bit. So, Steve, what <laughs> open questions, what do you know about the history of black farmers, particularly being a white boy and growing up in America? What have you learned about black farmers? Well, what I learned, and, and perhaps this is, you know, during the period of slavery, um, most African-Americans farmed, um, they, you know, and after emancipation, you know, there was a promise by uh, General Sherman of 40 acres and a mule, and of course that didn't occur. So it was a promise made and not delivered. But what happened was that many black Americans, you know, scrimped and saved. Maybe they fought in the Union Army and had a, a pension uh, or, or some money from that that they could invest in land. They didn't always get the best land. But, you know, it's a untold story, I think, of U.S. history uh, Federation of Southern Co-op is a great source on this. But, you know, between, say, 1865 and early 20th century, like till 1910, black Americans were able to acquire 15 million plus acres of land in the South and owned about 12 percent of all U.S. farmland at the time, you know, which was significant. That was roughly in, in proportion to the, 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 the number of percentage of black Americans in the United States. Um, that's not the case now. And, um, you know, what happened um, were a number of things. Uh, first of all, the rise of, of Jim Crow. There were often uh, black American farmers were forced off the land through uh, lynchings and, and other types of, of white violence. There was also a lot of uh, legal chicanery. Um, one thing was that um, a lot of farmers didn't, black farmers didn't trust uh, the uh, legal system for good reason. And uh, what that meant, though, is when farmers passed away, that property became what's known as heirs' property because there was often a, lacking, a lack of a will. And that allowed for unscrupulous like, land developers to basically force partition sales. So you went from a situation where you had 15 million plus acres of land in the South that was under uh, black control and farms to 
I don't know, the, the estimates are about two to three million acres. So more than 80% of the land was lost over the 20th century. So, I mean, I, I think that's a history that's not um, widely discussed. You can certainly find it in a lot of different sources. Um, but, it, you know, what the um, Black Food Justice Alliance effort today are about is about, you know, rebuilding um, uh, a Black-controlled food system and, and repopularizing um, farming as essential to employment, health, and economy and community building. So that National Black Food and Justice Alliance, that's what they're about, is trying to get more that blacks that own land to keep the land and get more blacks into farming. And Leanne Morissette will be on this webinar on Wednesday, January 25th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. That That is extremely frustrating, particularly when you say, um, you know, whites just lynch people, uh, take the land. Um, take whatever we we capture. They didn't want to see us with anything, or blacks with anything, and that that is extremely sad and harmful. That we went from slavery to Jim Crow, and then you said the legal chicanery, the injustice in the justice system, would just take take the land. And I had uh, a couple people from the Federation of Southern Co-ops on the show talking about this legal system and they're both lawyers um, and how if you understood the, the law, you could go in and take heirs' property. All you had to get, if there was 20 heirs, all you had to do was get one of them to sell their piece of the land to you and then you could go to the courthouse and force an auction and buy up the land and normally at a much lower price than the value of that land. And it's just it's sad that uh, the blacks have been treated the way we've been treated throughout these years, 400 years. So how do we how do we now get control over land or over the food? Is what this webinar is all about? Yeah, and I'll I'll just say on on heirs' property in particular, there are a lot of efforts to address that. There's in, in I don't know if you've had. Uh, her on your program, but we've published uh, Jenny Stevens, who's the executive director of something called the Center for Air uh, Property in, in South Carolina. And so, you know, there's both efforts to reform the law to prevent what you're talking about and also to help existing black landowners preserve their land and improve their land so that it's productive and actually generating uh, income. Uh, one of the things they do is a, a forestry program. Um, that generates income for the landowners, helps preserve uh, the land ownership. So that's one strategy is preserving the existing land. Another strategy is building, of course, um, acquisition funds to acquire uh, new land. And the strategies that you're going to hear about on the webinar are more focused on the middle layer, um, which is things like food hubs and farmers markets and places that help existing farmers sell their produce at a fair price so that they can sustain themselves as farmers and, and, and also create a healthy food habits in the community that's purchasing their, their goods. So what's a food hub? So a food hub can be almost anything, and it's kind of a, it's a broad term. So it, it's a hub. It's, it's something that is, is between, like, mass marketing 
and individual farmers. And it shares some characteristics, I think, with food marketing cooperatives. Some food hubs do support marketing of food. So they'll, they'll take the buy food from individual farmers and then sell it at um, large markets. That's one thing they do. But they also help with other support services that might be washing produce, processing, packaging, those kind of things that add value. So, you know, um, one of the things about farming as a business is that you've probably heard the phrase farm commodity. Um, so it's a commodity type business and commodities almost by definition have low profit margins. But if you can create value added agriculture, for example, packing lettuce um, and bagging it as opposed to just selling it outright, then you can charge a higher price and make a higher profit. And, you know, then the consumer has pre-washed lettuce and so forth. So it's, it's valuable to the consumer and it helps sustain uh, farming businesses more profitably. So you're going to be talking all about this on Wednesday, January 25th? Um, you know, we're going to ask about the history of black food sovereignty, about education, about uh, networking efforts, um, connections to the history that we were just talking about, connections to sustainability and uh, partnerships and what, you know, folks outside the movement can do to support it. So those are, those are some of the themes that we're hoping to cover. So you can go to nonprofitquarterly.org and you go to the bottom of that page, their homepage, page you land on, and you can look, it says upcoming webinars, and the one on the right is not is this food sovereignty program. Yeah, and also okay. if you look on that same page, there's a link to the series on black food sovereignty. So we actually published in December five articles. Um, so the authors of those articles are the people who are going to be on the webinar. So you publish five articles, and you can get those articles and read them beforehand if you want, or you can exactly. just come in and listen to to the stories of these five people, five black folks that are taking control over their food and their processes. Thank you. We'll be right back. We're going to talk a little bit more about history, and eventually we're going to talk about the future. We'll be right back. Steve, I said to you, we've been on the show for nine years now, and NCB has been our main supporter, financial and otherwise, our main cheerleader, telling us all about different people in the co-op world. They've just been phenomenal, and NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And when we talk about black and brown and indigenous communities, uh, they're more often than not low-income communities, and NCB has been working in that space. And talking, we're talking about webinars and food sovereignty. Food sovereignty is to get black folks, brown folks, indigenous people to own and control the process, their foods, this whole process of going from the farmer to the table. 
How do you have much more control over your life? How do you have much more control over your health? And in that, it could be creating jobs and creating wealth. But the black food sovereignty is created because in low-income communities, there are food deserts. Just It's difficult to get nourishing foods, foods that help the body as opposed to foods that tear the body down. So they're having a webinar about this on Wednesday, January the 25th, six days from the day, from 2 to 3.30, and go to nonprofitquarterly, all one word, nonprofitquarterly.org, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and you can register for this webinar to talk about what brothers and sisters are doing to get control over their food, okay, to help the farmers. And Steve, you said to us that there were 15 million acres of land about 1910 that blacks owned about 12% of all U.S. farmland, and today it's about 2.5 million. Uh, you said somewhere between 2 and 3 million, so I got that probably 2.5 million. And blacks were forced off the land, uh, I like the word chicanery, trickery, uh, legal by legal ways and by force, whether that force was lynching the family, lynching folks, just taking the land, and then people moving north because they couldn't get help from the U.S. government, Department of Agriculture, when there were droughts or when there were issues, the white farmers got the help, the black didn't. But I want to talk to you a little bit about one of the most famous incidents of Tulsa, the Tulsa bombing or massacre where whites just didn't want to see blacks do well, and they wanted to take over. What What do you know and have learned about Tulsa, the Tulsa incidents? Yeah, and I'll, I'll just say, like, um, I ended up going to Tulsa because that's where, um, so all of these people who are on the webinar, all these food justice advocates, were part of a convening in Tulsa this past June. That's where I met all these folks, and it was organized by um Black-led intermediary called Frontline Solutions. So these were, you know, grantees of, of Frontline Solutions. Or they and um, they brought everyone to uh, Tulsa. Not everybody there was a food justice advocate, but they were all community-building groups, uh, Black, Indigenous, Brown, um, and really, you know, in this decolonizing project is one way of thinking about sovereignty. Right? It's, it's a project of decolonization. And um, so the Jim Crow period um, was, you know, we, we tend to like to tell ourselves a happy story. Certainly white Americans like to tell themselves a happy story of, you know, continual progress in the United States. But that's not the true story. There was, there was Reconstruction and then there was the reaction against Reconstruction, which was Jim Crow. And so rights were taken away. There were, you know, in the 1870s, there were black senators, black governors in the South in the 1870s, right? And, mm -hmm. and then there weren't, and voting rights were taken away, and land was taken away. And this also affected urban areas. So Tulsa is a part of this. It's, it's not unique. You could talk about Rosewood, Florida, and so forth. And Tulsa was considered, however, one of the wealthiest black business districts in the United States. It, it went by the name of Black Wall Street. And in 1921, based on whatever the roots was had to do with something, you know, involving, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, so, some kind of interracial dating or what have you. But basically it was an attack which ended up um, burning down 
almost the entire uh, business district, which is called Greenwood District. And, you know, more than 300 people were killed. You know, the, the, the economic destruction was tremendous. And um, there was no, you know, insurance refused to cover most of the losses because, you know, the, the law favored white folks and not black folks in, in, in Tulsa. Um, but what the, the people in Tulsa did have, the uh, black folks did have, was title to the land. So they still had control of the land. And a part of the story that often doesn't get told is that they rebuilt before you go to the rebuilding of Tulsa, yep. I, I want to hear that part also. I just want to, you, you were saying that what I understood that started was a black man was supposed to have looked at or said something wrong to a white woman. It was simple. It was not dating. It wasn't rape. It wasn't stealing. It wasn't murder. Supposedly a black man Young black man said something. I'm sorry. Okay. So, and that started bombings, uh, airplanes bombing the area, and mobs and robbery and murder, like you said, over 300 people. So, um, and that's that's sad. I want to get back to this when you talk about what what happened after this in Tulsa. Yeah, so what happened was folks uh, rebuilt. Um, there, there was resistance. The, the white government didn't want them to rebuild, but they still had the title to the land, and they were able to rebuild the, the Greenwood District uh, such that there was about 250 black businesses in operation by the 1940s, which was actually more than there had been before the massacre in 1921. In 1921. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the, it was a thriving uh once again, a fighting district by the 40s and 50s. So it sounds like a, a, a recovery, a sort of a great story. Everybody should be happy. But what happened then? <laughs> um, a couple of things happened. Um, one um, was um, uh, integration, which had some ironic effects of, of taking away some of the customer base. Um, but the biggest thing that happened was an interstate highway. Um, so... They built an interstate highway. Um, it's elevated right through the middle of the historic Greenwood District, about 100 yards from the one surviving structure from the 1921 um, massacre. You know, and it it um, basically through eminent domain and uh, the, the dividing of the neighborhood, as happened in so many cities across the United States in the, in, you know, so we think of this as like ancient history. Not really. This happened in the 50s and 60s. The, the, the freeway was erected in 1970 in Tulsa. And um, the violence of uh, urban renewal was as uh, dramatic um, in its effect, if not more so, um, than the physical massacre of the 1921. Urban renewal was upset, take away black businesses devastate the black community, put the highway right through the black community. And, yeah, and, and it, actually it did. about hundreds of thousands of people who were affected, right? Not, not It just didn't just happen in Tulsa. In Tulsa, it was like a thousand people who were affected. But. So I, I remember, because I graduated from high school in 65, and a friend of mine worked for the highway administrator in, in West Virginia, and that's what they did. They took that highway right down the black community. Okay. And it devastated the black community in, in Charleston, West Virginia. Um, there was not much to devastate in Bluefield, West Virginia, where I grew up. It was not a big community, and blacks didn't know much. But Charleston had a 
fairly large black community with with businesses, and they put the highway right right down the middle. So it happened all over, and it was again the government, both the state and the federal government, destroying black communities, and that is just extremely sad. But that's that's yeah. our history. It's important to mention this, like it's important that this was a liberal democratic program, right? Um, the highway program and how, you know, these were programs that were done in the name of New Deal liberalism and they were devastating. Great program for great reasons and still upset the black community, hurt the black community as much as, if not worse than the bombings. You did not have, you couldn't count the the number of people that died or had poor health because of it or lost their financial uh, backing because of it. But there was, I would imagine, sickness and death and loss of land and loss of businesses because of the great system of the highway system, but using something that's great to destroy black communities. Yeah, and there was one... I may or may not get this name right. I'm going to try. I think it was Mabel Little, but she owned a barber shop, which was burnt down in 1921, rebuilt afterward, and then you know had to sell it. You know for uh, you know she got sixteen thousand dollars, which was something in 1970 for eminent domain, but but clearly a lot less wealth. So this is this is one of the factors that interrupts. Uh, wealth building in black communities is, is public policy. And, and, you know, so instead of maybe having, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of wealth, you know, she got 16000 out of the business. An eminent domain, for those of you that may not know it, is where the government can come in and take your land. They supposedly give you a fair market price for it, but that market price may not be enough to cover what the income that you could have earned over the next 30, 40 years uh, probably would not have been and whether it was enough for her to go out and buy another piece of land and put her business where her customers were is a whole nother issue also so yeah it it disrupt and legally disrupt the black community okay steve i'm getting sad um when we talk about taking of 1.3 million acres of land or destroying communities uh, throughout the U.S., black communities, in in the name of urban renewal or in the name of cre- creating ability for people to travel across the country. And our highway systems are phenomenal, and they have to destroy black communities. So I, I really want to talk about the future and something good because this is, this is, mm-hmm. this is tearing me down. Yeah, not not feeling good right now. <laughs> okay. Right. So if you want to have some good conversations about what you can do, yeah. come to this webinar on six days on Wednesday, uh, January 25th from 2 to 3.30. You can go to nonprofitquarterly.org, nonprofitquarterly.org, and you can go to the bottom of the page and it will say register into this food sovereignty and steve we're going to have to go to our final break here and i'm wanting to come back and talk more about the future i want to see if you we can figure out a way of uplifting my spirits because i've gone way down (laughs) okay i've gotten very sad over here and listening to the history of the u.s as it destroys 
black people, black families, black wealth, black health, and then ways that now we can, through cooperation, through working together, which is the way we've survived all of this, slavery, Jim Crow, all of it is by pinching our pennies and working together. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. News Talk 1450 WOLAM, where information is power. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and Steve Dubb is our guest today. We're talking about a webinar that's coming up on black food sovereignty and listening to five stories. Five people will be on on Wednesday, January the 25th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. So, Steve, we left before the break, and I'm feeling pretty bad, so I'm wanting you to lift me up by telling me about the future. What do you expect to get out of this webinar? What are the things that people can expect to learn to how they can take control over their food? Yeah, well, I think I'll start a little bit historically, just uh, like there's been, a, you know, some important efforts. Uh, Federation of Southern Cooperatives has been operating for over 50 years, building uh, black food systems in the South. Um, there's a new communities, which was started by Dr. Charles and Shirley uh, Sherrod, um, which is, you know, launched in the national movement of community land trusts that you, know, you can probably find community land trusts in, in that where community owns the land. And the folks that are on this webinar are building on those civil rights and social movement traditions and, and economic building that's happened over decades. So, you know, I don't want to give the impression that um, all is, is negative. A lot of, of work is being done in communities across the country to build um, community-controlled food system. And that's what you're getting on this webinar. So, you know, Pastor Keith Davis started with the, he calls it the Camden Green Center. So, you know, the food sovereignty, you know, is the dream. And uh, they started as a pantry. So that means giving away food for people who needed it. They still do that, but they also have created a whole food production greenhouse, you know, that's, that's top, you know, top of the art technologically, um, that's providing, you know, good living wage careers for folks who are going through their programs you know, working in partnership with local universities and agricultural programs. Um, so that's, you know, one story of, you know, transforming, you know, and, and, you know, he says, you know, people talk about Camden as, you know, you know, high poverty and so forth. He said, you know, what, what people don't understand about Camden is it's a community problem solver. So Camden, New Jersey, right up the highway from D.C., Pastor Keith Davis used to have a, you said hydroponic earlier. So they're yeah. growing their food in the city, in the urban area. Is that what you're telling us? They're growing? That is exactly what I'm telling you. And so then they sell their food or they they, they yeah, have they, a pantry where they give away yeah. some food. But Yeah. They, I mean, it's, it's income. It's, it's also, um, you know, it's also, you know, supports the pantry. But it's, and it's also education. So the folks can learn how to run greenhouses and, and set up their own. So it's actually like building a community of folks who are, you know, not just necessarily um, in Camden, but can go beyond Camden, right? You're training a new generation of folks in high-technology forms of farming. 
So what first attracted me to co-ops was the fifth principle, or seven principles of cooperation, but the fifth one is education, training, and information. Constantly training us on how we can improve ourselves, how we can get control over the land, how we can get control over our food systems. In this case, uh, Pastor Keith Davis in Camden, New Jersey, starting with a food pantry, giving away food, and now they're into hydroponics, which is a way of using water and a small piece of land like a greenhouse and create the food. And it's very nutritional vegetables. Okay. Who else is going to be on the, this webinar? Yeah, um, we have um, uh, Julian Miller from the Ruben V. Anderson Center at Tougaloo College. So that's a historically black college in rural Mississippi. Um, and they're working on developing a network of worker cooperative farms in Mississippi. Um, so they're trying to, you know, provide both training and technical support and networking um, to transform the food system in the Mississippi Delta. So Ben Burkett is the Mississippi representative for the Federation of Southern Co-ops. So I, I would bet that he's working with Tougaloo because Tougaloo has, they do a lot of things they, around cooperation and farming. And, yeah. Okay. I might want to see about getting Julian on the show sometime. Okay. This is all future-oriented, things that, that are happening now on the ground that will help us yeah. in the future have control over our food. Well, we have uh, Brielle Wright, and um, she's with the uh, Black Farmers Market. So they're running farmers markets in season in both uh, Raleigh and Durham. So those are two cities that are close to each other in, in North Carolina. And... Um, you know, they're providing healthy food to over 1,500 paying customers, you know, on a weekly basis, um, as well as generating income for the local black farmers in the community. And, you know, rebuilding the, um, you know, restoring traditional healthy foods to the black American diet. That's kind of the project in addition to the economics of it. And you mentioned in season. So this is mainly summertime that you have a black farmer? I think it's spring through fall or something like that. It's not a, I don't think it's a 12-month market, but um, at least at this point. Okay. And who else was going to be on the show? These are some great yeah, stories um, to come well, and listen to. Demetrius Hunter is Black Farmers Hub, so they work with farmers to add value to their produce. Um, as I was talking about, packing, uh, washing, pre, you know, packaging and, and marketing look to larger stores. Um, so they're playing that role. And, um, you know, it's for him, it's part of this, you know, his story is about uh, a story about, you know, how his family, he comes from a black farming family in the South. They lost their land. They re, they rebought some land. Um, so he's a farmer himself, as well as, you know, providing this food hub for the community. Okay. So he's a farmer. He's going through the loss. And as blacks do, we get knocked down, but we don't stay there. You get back up. And keep farming. Yeah. I guess last is Leanne Morissette, and she's from the National Black Food Justice Alliance, so she can speak to efforts across the country, including, I know you've had Malik Yakini on here before, and, you know, so there's a, you know, there's a national food movement that's leading to 
Black-controlled uh, food cooperatives in places like Detroit, where Malik is, and also there was a Black food co-op that opened in West Dayton, Ohio, just uh, in 2021. That's you know comes out of a social movement that started in 2014, 2015, and um, they were able to raise the money and build a, a market that they that's now controlled by that community. So that's happening in more and more cities across the country. So where I am, and uh, there's an effort in Louisville, so this is happening in many, many different communities. And so there are seven principles. I talked about the fifth one with education, training, and information, but the sixth principle is cooperation among co-ops. And what you find in this cooperative space is people are willing to share data, share information. And so the Dayton food market came out of Cincinnati. The Cincinnati co-op, Co-op Cincy, is, is helped Dayton a lot. And Co-op Cincy has a farm and, and food co-ops and uh, a, a real hub of co-ops, food security. And then they help Dayton and Dayton will help Louisville or keep helping each other is what happens. And there's the up-and-coming conference Deb Trocher out of Indianapolis puts on, but it's it was in Minnesota and then in Madison last year, and it was it normally in the wintertime. Um, the next one's in this, St. Paul. This year is in St. Paul in September. So if you're thinking about starting a food co-op or if you just want to know more about this food hub, you can come to this Wednesday, January 25th a webinar uh, at from 2 to 3.30. Go to non profitquarterly.org go to the bottom of the page and you can register and if you just google up and coming you just find that this conference is going to be in in September and I believe this Black Food and Justice or Black Food Alliance is helping to put that on it's a one day of blacks and Malik is one of the people that supported less blacks help each other because we we do have a different culture and a different language so you can get a lot of information and so we can control our future okay we can control our yeah, future. I, I think it's really exciting all the work that's being done and, and it's it's so different than darnell adams who was on a webinar we had with malik a year ago yeah she's a food co-op consultant you know 10 years ago there were very few food co-ops being developed in black communities and now they're happening all across the country. So it, it's, a, there's a lot of activity and it's, it's very exciting and it's, it's moving quickly. So 30 seconds, you have any final message for people? Well, I, I would just say, um, you know, this is a food is, you know, central to pretty much everything, health, our economy. And so I encourage you to look at your own community and, and get connected with uh, food justice efforts and food sovereignty efforts in your own town. We'll be back next Thursday, everybody. Thank you, Steve, so much for being on. Uh, please live cooperatively. News Talk 1450 WOLAM, where information is power.